What stressed me was the fact that I had friends who had invested money in the yeah, business. Yeah, that's understandable. And, um, and it was going to fail and, and they were going to lose their money. And that was the most stressful thing to me was losing, losing my friend's money. And, um, and then, you know, I had a couple employees, you know, I had hired some developers to help and stuff and I had to lay those people off. And that's really difficult, you know, cause those people count on you to, you know, for their paychecks and that right. sort of thing. So, so that's where the stress was, was not so much in that the idea wasn't going to work. It was the consequences of it not working. Yeah. Yeah. And so the business lasted a couple years uh, and then we finally had to fold up at the end of 2010. We just ran out of money before we could figure out how to make money. Casey McMullen made the decision to be a software engineer before he'd ever touched a computer. It was a gamble that paid off as he's gone through a career as a software leader in multiple large corporations and even a few startups. Hear his story and learn more about his journey on his third startup, Another Biz. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Founders Pod. I'm Jordan Hansen. I'm here with Brandon Miner, my co-host. Hello, Brandon. Hey. Hello. And we are here in the United Commercial Insurance Studio with our guest today in person, Casey McMullen. Hey, Casey. Hey, how you doing? Casey, we appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's pretty fun stuff. Now, I've, I looked at your LinkedIn before. Obviously, there was an impressive array of businesses and different uh, ventures out there. So we're excited to hear about that. But um, just to help our audience understand a little bit better about what you're doing right now and just help explain them to them. Um, you work right now, you're a co-founder and CEO of the company. It's called Another. That's right. And you can find it at another.biz. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Um, kind of in language that um, our mothers or you know, maybe someone that's not super technical would understand. You bet. So Another is a software company. A friend of mine, uh, Jeremy Billups, and I co-founded this business a couple years ago. And our goal is to create software that helps to bring businesses and people together. And so this year, we've launched a platform of a couple different products. One's called Another Self, and one's called Another Hire. Another Self is used to create profiles for yourself and your company. And Another Hire is an application that allows you to post jobs. Got it. So really, it's just an easier, uh, uh, really a good job board, right? So then yeah. you have your resume out there and a good way to just market yourself. That's correct. And the monetization, does that happen through job postings? Is that the idea? Yeah. So the idea is um, there's a charge to post jobs on another hire, and we charge $49 per job post for a 45-day okay. job post. Oh, that's very simple. Yeah. That's funny. The recommendation for you to be on this podcast was from Jeremy Billups. Mm -hmm. He didn't mention that he was a co-founder. 
This, is the, this right here is the first. He's yeah. like, hey, I've worked together with Casey on this. Yeah. This project. Jeremy. Jeremy is a. Uh, he's a. He doesn't talk a lot about himself. Yeah, <laughs> humble guy. He's a very humble guy. But yeah, he's super smart, and he and I have been friends for a long, long time, and worked together in a different startup prior to this. And he's a very talented graphics designer, and um, he writes children's books. So yeah, he's an illustrator, which is how you know him. That's how. Yeah, that's how I heard. And about uh, and he and I just decided that we wanted to do another business together, so we created another. Yeah, <laughs> another. <laughs> that was pretty good. Do you yeah, <laughs> do you guys do you guys focus on a specific industry, uh, or is it any industry? Another hire, another self. Yeah, any industry could post a job on another hire. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to focus on any one specific thing. Now, you, you gave us a business card here before. This picture, did Jeremy draw this? Yes. Oh, see, look at that. Jeremy's good. Jeremy, good job, Jeremy. Yeah, he drew all the pictures <laughs> on our business cards. Yeah, they look really good. The, if you go to another.biz, that website uh, also has more illustrations that Jeremy did. So, yeah, he's super talented. So, why the, why the name Another? Well, we kicked around a lot of names, um, and it was just another business together. You know, <laughs> we, had a, we had another idea, and there's all kinds of words that you can go off with that but it, we decided to make it part of the brand so if you look at another hire and another self you'll see the word another stands out in the in the brand name so it's part of our branding as well now in the future right now i mean job boards i know are lucrative they mm -hmm. can do really well um do you see a world where you also uh use other monetization such as ads on another or another self or do you think that will be the main monetization yeah the main the main, and I'm sure we'll get into this in the line of questioning. There's, uh, there's lots of job boards out there. Uh, you know, the the barrier to entry is pretty low to get into that business. Um, but we want to stand out as a high quality, low cost job board. Uh, if if you've ever posted a job on Indeed or LinkedIn, which is what we see as our two biggest competitors, you'll know that the price is quite high. Um, they'll charge you anywhere from 300 to $500 for your job post, depending on the pricing model and the product that you're trying to use. And so through the process of coming up with this idea, Jeremy and I decided that there's no reason why businesses should charge so much for a job post. As software developers, um, we know that the infrastructure that we have to build to host a single job post, you know, put it putting a server in the cloud and building the application, the amount of work that you put in to host just one job post can host millions. And the cost is low. You know, the incremental cost to host one more job post is really low. And so it became a mission of ours to correct that because it's cost prohibitive for small businesses to post jobs on those platforms. It's super expensive for them. Sometimes the pricing is very confusing and convoluted and so we wanted to build something that's simple and that's reasonably priced and so it's really become a mission of not only creating something that's fun for us to do because we are software developers after all and uh, but it's not just something to for us to do but it's to do something good for other businesses as well and create a way for them to post a job and hire people without you know being burdened with those big costs. Where do you post, Brandon? Yeah, so I post on Indeed, but I've used ZipRecruiter, LinkedIn, Indeed, Craigslist, 
Yeah. I think I've used others, but I, I remember, so I can afford a little bit more now, but the first few, I just used Craigslist cause it was 25 bucks. The first few postings I made because yeah. I think zip recruiter out the door is $350. You have to commit a bunch to them. And if you're hiring for a position like customer service, that's, you know, an hourly rate, that's fairly small. Sometimes you just. Hard to justify that cost. It was incredibly difficult. And I didn't for a number of years. You're like, well, so, this is a few weeks of this person. I mean, month or whatever, you know, this could be that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and if you're on a budget, if you're, if you're a small business and you're saying, okay, well, I make a certain amount of, of net that I take home. Well, you know, that indeed posting could go to, especially in the, you know, 2020, 21, 22, when the competitive market for hiring employees is incredibly high. I mean, you could have that posted on there for weeks and months and it could be costing you to advertise on indeed, you know, five or $600 a month. Yeah. And so it was, ex- yeah, it's expensive. And they have, and I'm not just picking on indeed, but the, they have pricing models where the job post is free right? You can post your job for free, but then they charge you per applicant. And so, so now I have people telling me their horror stories about, um, you know, they post their job and they're a business that's open Monday through Friday. And so they go home on Friday and they get job applicants over the weekend. And you, in that pricing model, you, you have to respond to that job post within 24 hours. So you either have to say, I accept this applicant or you have to say find me another applicant and if you don't respond with find me another applicant within 24 hours they charge you for that applicant $45 or I've heard $85 per applicant so you know you have a small business owner who goes home Friday night comes in Monday morning they've had four applicants over the weekend and none of them are qualified but they didn't respond within 24 hours and they get charged for all four applicants uh, yeah <clears throat> and it's crazy well and I, they, just, I don't understand that I don't they've, understand. they've changed their pricing model a number of times in in i think the nine years i've been with them yeah they went pay-per-click for a while and yeah and then they're you know they charged 300 bucks for 30 days and yeah it's it has changed they do a lot of different things it seems like each time we post it'll be a different setup but but that's interesting. That's really, I mean, when did you guys start it? So we, <clears throat> we started the idea. We've had the idea for a while. We kicked it around for a long time before we actually started writing code. Um, but we launched it in April of last year. So April of 2021 is when we have officially uh, launched into the business and started writing code in June of last year. Uh, I hired a friend of mine who's been writing code for me for a lot of years with a number of different companies and uh, he came on board and started helping me write code. He and I have been the primary developers on this, on these two products over this past year. And as a matter of fact, we just launched another hire uh, last week Oh, on really? Ha- on Halloween. Yeah. We just, we just officially launched it and got our first job posts last week. Cool. So it's, I see. It's like brand new. Well, we're going to get into that. We're going to get All into right. more of that. So let's not spoil it, but um, Casey, you mentioned before we started this, that you grew up in a small town in Idaho called Weezer. That's right. Um, you, you were born there, you ra- you were raised there, everything. Yeah. Born and raised. Nice. Yeah. And so Weezer has a fiddle festival. They do. The <laughs> that's third, what it's known. Third full week of June. Yeah. yeah. So th- that's what I know Weezer from and the band. 
but um, different, <laughs> different things, different yeah. things. But I've never been to the fiddle festival in Weezer. Yeah, you should go. But I should go. You should go. Is it a good time? Well, why why should I go? Well, <clears throat> there's a number of different ways to enjoy the fiddle festival. Um, it's it's a great place to go and just and s- see all the people. You can go to because the people that come to Weezer, Weezer is a small town of 4,000 people. But all of these fiddle players, guitar players, you know, of that genre of music come there and the, you know, the town just ex- blows up with all these people and they camp all over yeah. around. And so you can go around and visit these camps where these people are staying and just enjoy the music, right? You can go from groups of trailers to groups of trailers and there'll be people just sitting around a campfire playing music and you can sit down and hang out with them and listen to music and it's a great place to hang out and of course then there's a competition that takes place and you can buy tickets and go you know watch that happen and and see some great musicians from all over the country that come there and play it's kind of a cool deal i know i know of a gentleman that would camp there all week yeah and fiddle it out yeah the whole time he play the fiddle Good question. I don't know. I I know he played an instrument. I see. Huh. Anyway, though, no, I always wanted to make it down there for the fiddle festival, so that's kind of cool. But so, what did your parents do while you when when you were growing up in Weezer? So I grew up on a farm. My dad was a farmer and a rancher. We had a few cows. My grandfather was a pretty big cattle rancher, and so that's what I grew up doing. My mom worked at the local grocery store in Weezer. And so it was just a farmer's, you know, I was a farmer's kid growing up. Any yeah. milk in the cows? No, we didn't have any milk cows. No dairy cows. It yeah. was just, it was, you know, beef cattle. Mm-hmm. And so there was feeding cows. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Feeding <laughs> cows, putting up hay, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So in your house right now, do you have a freezer in the garage full of, of I beef? Do, I do have a freezer in the garage. It is not full of beef. Yeah. I, I haven't had a freezer full of beef for quite some time. Yeah. So did you have a big fan? Were there a lot of brothers and sisters? Um, so we have a, I grew up with a very complicated family. My mom and dad had been, both been married once before. And so I had siblings from my mom's first marriage and I had a brother from my dad's first marriage and then they had me. So it was a his, hers and ours kind of an arrangement. <clears throat> I was the youngest by, by a pretty significant amount. And so uh, I, I had a sister that lived with us when I was early, when I was very young. And then, but for the most, most of my life, I grew up as kind of an only child because they were all older and gone and married and raising their own kids in some cases by the time I came along. So that must have been pretty convenient on the farm being the only one to do chores, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's like the Carrying only that burden. Yeah. Like farmers usually have big families because they need, yeah, they need the help. Like 10 kids to feed. the cow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, just Casey. Casey's good enough. Yeah. That was it. And so you wanted to be a rancher. Nope. I did not want yeah. to be a rancher. Did not want to be a farmer. <clears throat> and, uh, by the time I got to high school, I was very, I got very involved in speech and debate and was pretty good at that and thought that when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And so early on, my dad realized that I wasn't going to be a farmer. And so I 
my folks never really pushed me into doing that. They let as me, in taking it over or still help. You had, still had to help. I still had to help. I mean, yeah. you know, you live at the house, you got to drive a tractor and put up hay and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but they knew that that wasn't going to be my, my lifelong endeavor. So, um, I went through high school thinking I was going to be a lawyer until I got to my senior year in high school, which was 1982. And, um, a gentleman came to the high school and made a presentation. Uh, he was from the DeVry Institute of Technology. And he made a presentation on programming computers and how that could be the future. And for some reason, that really resonated with me. And in 82. 1982, yeah. I bet you had no friends at the computer at home. Uh, not that I knew of. Yeah. I mean, it was... Maybe an Atari. Well, wait, where was the the most, the closest computer in Weezer. So I, Boise. Yeah. Maybe they might've had one in like the office of the school, like, you know, the Mm. maybe one computer, you know, some sort of Tandy computer or something like that, you know, from Radio Shack in Mm -hmm. the, in the office of the school or something. I, in fact, so long story short, that resonated with me. I decided I wanted to be in computers and learn how to program. How did that convince you? I'm just like, that it would just seem was like a, a foreign concept. Yeah, it was. It was a compelling, it was a compelling story. It just, it was really interesting. And I just decided right then that's what I wanted to get into. Now, when did War Games come out? The movie. Yeah, the movie War Games, huh? I think that was later in the 80s, wasn't okay, it? Okay, so you did not like you had that to inspire you. I had you. nothing. So you, oh, ironically, I had never touched a computer until my first day of class when I went to DeVry. That's the very first time I ever touched a computer was in college when I went to go get my Bachelor of Science in Computer Information System. That's just, cr- it's just, I can't even imagine like making that decision based on, because it's not like you had movies that were talking about, I'm trying to think of any movie that would have been prior that would have had somewhat, some I mean, kind of picture. You know, back then it was Star Wars, right? That in the I guess. Late that's 70s, like your close, I mean, that's not even close to reality, but no, I uh, guess. Yeah. There was, yeah, there was really nothing to... Yeah, Star Trek. To Come on, computer. On. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hello, computer. Data. Yeah. Did you, so when you went to DeVry, were you just expecting to pew? Like pew pew, like kind of shoot stuff? Oh, no, there's no pew. There's no pew video games. Well, Star Wars. Okay. Pew pew. Okay, you know? sure. It's like that's what I you guess. knew from <laughs> I computers and stuff. I, uh, you where, know, where is DeVry? Where is that? So back, I mean, DeVry at that time, I don't know if it still is. It's, it's a private. It's DeVry University now, yeah, right? Back then very, it was yeah. owned by Bell and Howell. And there were eight locations that oh, you could go okay. to. And yeah, it's like a Arizona, or it's like a University, University of Phoenix, Phoenix now, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, some, it's similar. It's DeVry University. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's like that. Um, so there were eight locations. The closest to Weezer was in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. So that's where I went. I went to Phoenix, and I lived in Arizona for three years while I went to school there. Now, because it was a private school, I mean, it could have been, an, it had to be expensive. In 1982 dollars. I mean, you yeah. Know, so it was expensive, but not. It like, was expensive. It seemed expensive then, but compared to what you pay now, even with inflation, it doesn't. It still is. Yeah, yeah it's a lot yeah. more now. It was, uh, you know, and there was. I qualified for like the Pell grants, and okay, I got student loans and that sort of thing to go there. But you know, my parents didn't have the money for me to go yeah. to school like that. So I ended up working nights at UPS. Okay, so I worked full time nights and then went to school during the day during the time I went there I, I still had student loans and stuff when I was done when you're in high school did you I mean was your main 
what jobs did you have? Or did you have jobs in high school? Just working on the farm. No, working on the in farm. The, in the summer, I put up hay, right? So my, my dad and my grandfather were both ranchers. And so in the summer, I just put up hay. That's how I made my money in the summer when I was a kid. Put up hay. Mm-hmm. That means? So we'd grow hay to feed the cows in the winter, right? And so during the summer, you cut the hay. You, you grow alfalfa and you cut it and bale it. So it gets all bailed up into hay bales and those are out in the field and you got to take the truck out or a tractor. And Have a you ever bailed hay, Brandon? I've never, well, bailed hay. Bailed, as, as in throwing as, it into the back. I've never. Yeah. No. You're missing out. That would be a good workout though. Oh, it's a good workout and it's super itchy. It's not very uh, yeah. itchy. Yeah, yeah. It's itchy and sweaty, but yeah. yeah, it's, we used to go buck bales, yep. you know, and, really and strong, stack though. it. Yeah. Stack hay. I like seeing those, uh, whatever the machinery they have now, it's like this big tractor that just kind of picks them up Yeah, and stacks head. it on its mm-hmm. own. Yeah. My, my dad let me put up hay while I lived at home. And then as soon as I went to college, he hired a guy down the road who had a Harold yeah. bed. He'd come and he'd have it all done in one day. Right. <laughs> what used to it's take, like, this is a learning experience for you. Yeah, exactly. What used to take me and a buddy a week, you know, to put up all the hay, yeah. you know, a guy'd come down with a piece of machinery and do it in a day and yeah, be done. Yeah. You know, it's like, now, did you get paid? I mean, yeah, my okay, dad your dad be, would pay you. Okay, during this time. okay. I was gonna say you must have had some kind of you know income or whatever. But anyway, your your future you thought was a lawyer, attorney is what you mm-hmm. saw your future. Yeah, that's what I thought it was gonna be. And then you changed gears completely to computer programming or computer on a whim. Yeah. On a whim. Now, what did you what did you think your future would look like after that? So back in those days, um, you know, the PC really hadn't made its way into business you know, widespread. So back in those days, you were, you were really trained to be a, a programmer on like an IBM mainframe, right? So right. I was learning COBOL I mean, mm-hmm. that was the primary language to learn when I went to school was COBOL. So I got introduced a little bit to basic and some other languages, but it was really learning COBOL was, and being prepared to work at, you know, some giant, a firm like EDS or IBM or something like that you know, back in those days. And so that's kind of what you thought. I'm going to be this computer software, uh, computer programmer, who knows what they were called back then. Something. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you think back to the pictures of, you know, the room full of computers, that's kind of what I thought I would be was working in a giant room full of computers, you know, writing, writing some sort of application for a business. And, I, and did you like it? Well, let's, I want, yeah, you're talking about in college? Yeah. Okay, college. good. That's my question, right? Yeah, I liked it. I liked a lot in college. Um, I liked a lot of things in college, like partying too. So, <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I, I really did. I, I knew right away that's what I want, that I ch- had made the right choice. And then that was something that I wanted to do was, was um, write code and, and create things. And that's, and that's really where it resonated was, was, it's an interesting way for me to be creative because I can build things that people can use. And that really became super interesting to me during my time there. I think there's two interesting things here. One is that how many people do you think, I mean, first of all, most people go to college, their first choice hardly ever is it their last choice, right? They change as they go through it. You are an exception. You chose business and you uh, mostly, right? You changed over to entrepreneur. But most people, they go in there and they change once they see, okay, this isn't what I want or not. But not only that, but you had no idea. I just, I mean, all you had was this picture painted by DeVry. Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into. I really had, I had no expectation of what it was going to be like. 
I didn't know where I was going to wind up. And it was right. That's just crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. But wait, did the guy say coming out of college, you're going to make X salary? And did you, did you, you didn't have that as an equi- part of the equation? No. Uh-uh. He just said, did he say, oh, this is going to be a promising? But yeah. So you knew it probably. In, in that time, in the, in the early eighties, you know, computers were exploding into business and, and, you know, the concept of being a computer programmer uh, back then, it was just this, man, if you could become a computer programmer, you could make a ton of money, you know, and, and there was really no, like we have today, um, it's just a different world today than what it was then. But it was like, it was just this career that you could choose where you knew you were going to make a lot of money doing it. But there was just not a lot of examples set. Right. It just seemed like the demand was there. Yeah. 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 A lot of demand and not a lot of people doing it yet. Yeah. It was, it was an early, it was early times. So the other thing I wanted to note was, so I'm a software guy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that surprised me, because my degrees in accounting didn't have any software. I thought it was a little too nerdy, not that cool. And yeah. um, I was really surprised when I started doing it, that if the creativity you just described I thought this is, a, it did, you know, for me, I didn't see computer programmers as creative people. I thought that was more like an artist, mm-hmm. but that's the biggest thing I felt that I miss it sometimes now because I don't do it as much right. is that lack of creativity, like creativity. It's so creative. So anyone who's thinking about doing software engineering, I, you know, I love it. I think it's just a great option and really a good way to express creativity. Yeah. And it's changed because back then the output that you created was generally you know, green bar reports, right? right? That's what you created. But I'm not talking about even the UI. Yeah. You can, it feels amazing to create even just script. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Does what you want. It's magic. You're building. Yeah. Yeah. So can I just go back and just see what, what your life was like? Because I imagine you like Bill Gates putting a card into a big machine and coding that way. Or what, what was your experience like? Can you build that picture for me? Cause I, I don't know anything about what you went through. Sure. So, when I went, uh, when I started learning how to, to write code and be a computer programmer, that was right at the end of the punch cards that you would put into the machine. So I missed all that, right? That's, that was just before me. So for us, it was, you'd write a big pile of COBOL code, and then you had to send it off to be compiled, right? So you'd submit this job. And you'd write it on yeah, paper. Or no, what you would, would you write it on? Code. You would you'd write, write it on a computer. You yeah. would type it on a computer. Yeah, you would type it. You would type it into the computer. But there was a little bit of paperwork ahead of time because you had to design the report right that you were trying to uh, create with your code, and so you would do a little bit of paper design. Like here's how I want this like whiteboarding to look. now. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you call whiteboard whiteboarding now. now. Yeah, but there was like these tear off forms, these report forms that you would use that had like a grid of, you know, 132 characters wide and 80 characters tall. It was like a, it was like a tweet on Twitter. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Except a big paper one. Mm-hmm. And you would, you would literally like design the report that you were trying to uh, create because it was very uh, type specific. So you had to say in, you know, in, in row one, column one, I want, here's the first letter of the title of the report. And in row one, column two, here's the second letter. Mm. Of the report. And you design yeah. it out that way. And, and then you would sit down and write the code and send it off to be compiled. And as I recall, you know, you would come to class the next day and 
see if your program compiled. And if it didn't, you'd have to make changes and send it off to be compiled again. And yeah, things have changed a lot. Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, coding's coding, but that's it's a different, different yeah. 40 years later. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so, you know, you didn't ever think about changing. You stayed with UPS for a few years to help pay. So uh, I worked at UPS at, at night while I was going to school during the day. And what I didn't anticipate was just how interesting it was to work for UPS. The hub that's in Phoenix is quite large. It's one of the major hubs in the Southwest that connects the West Coast to the Midwest, right? So um, a lot of uh, packages run through Phoenix that connects both, both areas of the country. And so when I, when I went to work at UPS, I started off in, in damages, so as you can imagine, packages get damaged as they're being shipped. And so I worked with a customer service crew putting packages back together um, that got damaged during shipment and making sure they made it on their way or not. And so that kind of, I did that for a little bit and then moved into the, the area of UPS that's over the road, the tractor trailers. So I didn't really get into like package delivery part of the business. I got into the over the road business part of UPS, which was super interesting. And you were you were driving? No, oh. um, dispatch more or less. Okay. So these drivers would come in from um, California and different parts of Arizona, and they'd bring their trailers in, and those trailers get unloaded, and then you know those packages get delivered, or those packages uh, will like. You know, packages coming from the east would get unloaded out of those trailers and loaded into trailers that were going west, those kinds of things, or loaded onto rail. And so all night long, there's these tractor trailers coming into this UPS hub, and they've got to park their trailers and hook up to new trailers and those kinds of things. And so I got into this job where, because I knew computers, um, UPS, the Phoenix Hub was one of the first hubs to have that part of the business computerized. And so I got to work on the computers there and dispatch these trailers and like tell them where to park and go pick up this trailer and take it to the rail yard. And so I was shuffling trailers around and that became really quite interesting. Um, UPS at that time, maybe still does, has a division called industrial engineering that does a lot of research on efficient ways to move packages around and deliver packages. And so I started developing this idea that I, that someday I could maybe work in industrial engineering inside of UPS. Fast forward to the end of my college days and I graduated from DeVry and I wanted... 86, probably 86, 87? 1985. So, so um, DeVry was... Uh, year-round. So their school is based on trimesters. And so you go year-round with a couple weeks break in between trimesters. So I started in 82 and finished in 85 with a five-year degree because it's... Is that a bachelor's? Is it a bachelor's bachelor's of science and computer information. And so so I investigated into getting a job in industrial engineering. At that time, to do anything in UPS, you had to go through package delivery. And so... I didn't want to go into package delivery. That's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to drive around in a brown truck in 110 degree weather, lugging packages to people's houses. 
And so that was it. It was like, well, if, if that's my only path to get into industrial engineering, I don't want to do it. And so I left UPS and moved back to Idaho to figure out how to find a job in computers. That's how I got, wound up back here. Now, well, what's next? Yeah, I want to hear. How'd you find a job? So, 85. So, 1985. So, I. Three computers in Idaho. Yeah, there's, there's three of them. No, so I, I, I came back to Idaho and took a little time off, took a couple weeks off or a couple months off. And um, a friend of mine from high school that I went to high school with, he and I were just water skiing, hanging out you know, during the summer. Black Canyon, probably. <laughs> yeah, uh, close to Weezer. Yeah. And so um, he was like, so what are you going to do next? And I'm like, well, I'm going to have to find a job you know, programming somewhere. And his, he goes, my sister works for a consulting firm in Boise that does programming of some sort. I'm like, well, that's cool. And so he told me uh, what business it was. And I contacted her and she's like, yeah, they're, they're hiring. And so... I went and interviewed with them, and it was uh, a company that no longer exists called DMA, and it was a consulting firm that was an IBM business partner, and they were into uh, providing services to small businesses in the mini-computer realm, so the IBM System 36 uh, world, if you're familiar with that. Um, And so I went and interviewed with them. That particular world required a knowledge of RPG, the programming language called RPG, which I had one semester of at DeVry. And so I said, sure, I can do this. And um, they hired me and found out that I only had one semester of it and wasn't really all that good at it, but they trained me. And, um, and I became pretty good at it. And so uh, I worked at that consulting firm for three or four years. And uh, finally, one of my clients at the time, uh, Agro Beef Company, was one of our clients. And uh, I wound up getting a job with Agro Beef uh, as an entry-level programmer and moved up the ranks there. And I wound up working at Agro Beef for a good portion of my career. Well, that's like where two worlds collided, right? The ranching and the computing. Yeah, that's where the that's where the irony came in is because Agribeef is, um, you know, they're a beef company and they had feedlots and at that time they had a number. They were very diversified. They're in a number of different businesses, but um, yeah, that's where it all came together, right? So my came full circle and my mm-hmm. my computer degree was used in an agricultural company, but it's a great company, uh, family owned, and I still have a lot of friends there. But that, that was a good, so that was a large portion of my career. You started there in 1989, 1990? 88. So I started at Agribeef in 1988. Uh, I worked there for seven years, became the, the data processing manager. That's what it was called back then. I ultimately became the data processing manager, and I had a few people that worked for me that wrote code and um, did system operations work and that sort of thing. What language are you in at that time? RPG. So all RPG, of that RPG was on the whole time. Yeah, IBM System 36. Um, that's all RPG code. And so um, I did that. I worked there until 1995. And then I left to go into consulting with a friend of mine. And uh, I did that for three years. So that's your own business in? Like a 
so he had a so uh he still he's he still has the business his name's greg chavez and uh he had his business called orion development which was an ibm business partner consulting business same thing that uh, i had been doing before agribeef but he was looking for a partner so i you know, I went into that business with him because I wanted to learn more about running a business, which I didn't feel like I was getting at Agribeef. So did you like your jobs there at um, Agribeef and the consulting firm? Yeah. You, you did. Yeah, I liked them. Um, but I got into the consulting business and I found that I was, I had worked seven years at Agribeef and I was really kind of missing it, right? I really liked Agribeef. And one day uh, they approached me, Agribeef approached me and said, hey, remember when you left, um, we hired a person to replace you. And I said, yeah, I remember. And, and, uh, he said, well, she w- doesn't want to manage anymore. She just wants to step down and be a programmer. Would you come back as a consultant and do your old job until we can find your replacement? And I said, how about if I just come back? And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, I'd, I kind of miss Agarby if I wouldn't mind coming back. And he's like, you're hired. Done. Done. And mm-hmm. so, I went back to Agribeef, and that was in 1998. That's where you say, though, with a 20% increase or something. Yeah, right. right. Like an yeah, I got, pay, a, right? I got a little bit of an increase, okay. but I was yeah. just happy to get back. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so I got back to Agribeef in, in 1998 and um, was asked to, lead, to create an internet development team. At that time, Agribeef owned a company called MWI Veterinary Supply. Yeah. And you know MWI brand? Oh yeah, you do. They're like, are they still just MWI? They're called they... M- they're called MWI Animal Health now. Yeah, and they're owned by Amerisource Virgin. Yeah, so they're a very large company. They are really? a huge company. They're mm-hmm. huge, and they were they were just down the street at the time when this was in. What was it? Two thousand and five, is when I got to. They were in Meridian, and I used to go to their place and wash their cars. Oh, yeah, sure, with the mobile car wash. The mobile car wash. Right. That's but, awesome. but then they exploded in growth. I mean, they grew so much. Yeah, so that company used to be wholly owned by Agribeef. Um, when I first started in Agribeef in 1988, that business was in a warehouse in Nampa, and that was its only location, and it was just a local company. So internet business, they were like, okay, 98, we can see the internet is getting bigger. That's right before the, the dot-com. Yeah, so, so Agribeef wanted MWI to be the first a veterinary distributor on the web. Mm. So they wanted me to build an e-commerce system, which I knew nothing about, right? And so they asked me to learn it, create an internet team, and build this e-commerce system. So... That'd be like, C, like, like uh, not C, but probably ASP. Yeah, right? classic, classic AS, ASP. Classic ASP with VBScript. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it was. And so we wound up, uh, with the help of a local uh, company, a consulting company, uh, I hired a team and put a team together, and with the help of this consulting company, we built this e-commerce system, and we were the first, MWI was the first uh, dis, you know, veterinary distributor on the web, and that's where I fell in love with web development. So that's where that all got started. How familiar were, were you with the internet before then? Email, you know, okay. email so and a little email. bit of browsing, you know, using AltaVista to find stuff, and mm-hmm. um that was really my only experience with the internet was just a little bit of web browsing and email. That's really all I knew about it. Did you have a computer at home? At that time, no. No computer at home yet. No, no computer at home yet. 98? You had a computer at home, Brandon, at that time, I think. Yeah, you did. I remember Windows 96. 98. I know, but isn't there a Windows 96? 
Oh, it was 98? It was 95. There was Windows, Windows 95. 95. Oh, okay. I'm in between then. I remember. DOS, and then Windows 3.1 and then 95. Okay. I remember having Windows 95. So, yeah, we had one. But, well, yeah. But when they approached you and they said, um, build this, were you skeptical? Because you, you hadn't had any. Were you skeptical about the success of an e-commerce platform for a new company like that? No, it made total sense. Because, I mean, this is right before the dot-com. This is when every internet company was, like, exploding. Yeah. yeah. And whether they had value or not, which that's what the dot-com bubble was, right. that's the case. But, yeah, at that 98, you think it's just, like, amazing. Yeah. the uh, I had no question that it was a great idea. Um, MWI only sells products to veterinarians, right? Mm -hmm. And so they wanted us to build a site that veterinarians could go to and order their products online. Um, that, to me, made perfect sense because it expanded the reach, right? right? And it also from a from a regional Idaho based, right, right, because you know, then all the way out, yeah, a veterinarian in New York City could place an order if they yeah. wanted to, right? Casey is responsible for the boom, blowing up of MWI. That's uh -huh. what we're saying right here. <laughs> no, that's that's not me. Um, so uh, it made perfect sense. The It didn't make a lot of sense inside the company. Um, money that, was, that had been ear-tagged for other things, warehouse expansions and stuff like that, was suddenly redirected towards building this e-commerce system which ruffled feathers inside management and those sorts of things. And then the salespeople at that time were scared of losing their jobs. You know, they thought the internet was going to re replace their jobs and that the customers would buy over the web and there wouldn't be a need for a salesperson anymore, which of course that's not how it works. And so, um, so there was a lot of resistance inside the company actually um, to, to have an e-commerce system built, but we overcame it. And um, we got it built and launched, and now the vast majority of MWI's business comes via the web. Yeah. No, well, MWI is really large. And so did, were you a part of MWI at that point? Or were you just working at AgriBeef, working for MWI stuff? So at that point, um, in the early 2000s, AgriBeef sold, uh, sold the majority of MWI to an investment company. I can't remember the name of it out of the, off the East coast. And that company started infusing capital to expand MWI around the country and build distribution warehouses around the country. So MWI was already growing very rapidly right then, but Agribeef retained um, a minority stake in the company. Uh, but at that time I was an, an Agribeef employee and, and just working, doing work for MWI, but MWI was, you know, a business owned by Agribeef, yeah. just like the feed yard business or any of the others. Cool. And then after that project, you stayed at Agribeef for a long so time? So when Agribeef sold MWI off, um, the, the companies had to split when, when Agribeef sold the majority stake. MWI had to become its own business and couldn't, and couldn't share services out of Agribeef. So they had to split. So Agribeef or MWI needed its own development team, its own IT department, its own accounting, HR, and all of that. They had to split everything. And so at that time, I was presented, uh, I worked for the vice president of uh, information systems at Agribeef. He was my boss. And they called me in one day and gave me a choice. 
my boss was going to go be the VP of IT for MWI in that split. And I could either go to MWI or I could stay with Agribeef. And they um, implied that they would like me to stay with Agribeef and take over the, take over the um, director's job for IT at Agribeef. And so <clears throat> I made that choice. So I stayed with Agribeef when that split happened. And uh, Agribeef put me through school. Got, I got an MBA at that point and ultimately uh, became the CIO of Agribeef Company. And so at that time, that's what I thought I wanted was, you know, moving up the ladder. And, and so, um, so I became the CIO and I was the CIO there for a few years uh, until 2008. Okay, so just timeline here, they split probably what, 2002? Yeah, about 2002 Okay, when that all happened. And you split off. Now, how was your happiness level with these jobs? Were you pretty content, happy? At, at first, I was, I was pretty content because it was kind of fun um, figuring out the new, helping Agribee figuring out, figuring out its new business model because it went from this diversified agricultural company owning businesses like MWI and, and some others to a very uh, to a very specific branded beef company, so they they, they kind of changed their business model to be a vertically integrated beef producer, and it was fun helping change that business and, and being a part of it. Um, but I was missing writing the code. I was missing you know being somebody to, that could create uh, and and solve problems, solve different kinds of problems. Um, through writing qualifier code. for Brandon, like he doesn't solve problems at all unless he's writing code. Yeah, I know there's different problems. You there guys are different solve. problems right. to solve, and right. um, and so here I was. I was the CIO of Agribeef, and I was um, you know, had a nice office and a nice paycheck, and and it was it was a great job and a, at a great company. But I I started to find that I wasn't content, and so um, I started thinking of like. Everything I was looking at was looking like a, a, a business idea, you know, it's one of those kinds of things. And so I was always trying to think of something else I could do uh, that would allow me to get that creativity out. And I realized that I, I was not going to accomplish that in the role that I was in. Do you feel like you had an entrepreneur? I mean, you really hadn't done much of your own business here before this mm -hmm. at all. Was that a dream of yours ever? Had that ever been in your mind? Like, ah. Maybe, or I, yeah, I really want that. I don't know that it was so much something that would, had always been in my mind into something that just sort of manifested. It's like, oh, I think this is what I want to do. You I know? see. And so I had this idea that I wanted to build um, that, that came from an idea within Agribeef. And I, I presented it to one of the executives at Agribeef and said, hey, I think this would be a cool thing to build. And... Um, it was not within the line of vertically integrated beef production. It was, you know, it was a completely different concept, different business. And it's like, that's really not something we want to get into. And so um, I left the company to go build this idea and created my first startup. So uh, obviously software related. Yeah. Um, but how was that decision? I mean, that can't be easy. What, what motivated that decision? Were there concerns, stress? Tell, walk us through that. Well, I, <clears throat> so the idea was um, Agribeef, the, the founder of Agribeef was, uh, liked to fly airplanes. He was a pilot. And so Agribeef 
ultimately ended up owning a jet. And we used that jet to fly all over to the different locations. And that jet, the services of that jet was, was shared amongst all of the divisions of the Agribeef. And so in order to find out if the jet was available to go somewhere or if it was going somewhere where you needed to go, uh, you had to go talk to Patty. <laughs> you know, She was the one that managed the schedule for the jet. And so you had to go talk to Patty to find out, is there a seat available? You know, when's it going to, uh, you know, when is it going to go up to Yakima? I, I need a seat. Is there a seat available? And so I had this idea, wouldn't it be cool if we could just have an application where you could like go online, you could see, is there a seat available on the jet? And what, when's it going? Sort of like a, you know, like a Southwest Airlines, you know, online. I, I want to go book a seat on the company jet. And so I had this idea of, creating an application because there's lots of companies that own jets, right? And there must be this same sort of challenge of knowing when the jet's available, when's it going, is there a seat available? And so I wanted to create this application of booking a seat on a company jet. And that's how it started. And it's like, I became pretty passionate about it. I wanted to try to build something like that. It sounded cool, sounded fun did a little research and I talked to other companies that own jets and they indeed had the same problem, the same challenges of knowing when it's available and if there's a seat available. So that's, I left Agribeef not even knowing how hard it was to create a business and create a software startup. It just seemed so simple to me. And so I left Agribeef to go create this business. Were you, were you married at the time? Yeah. Newly married. Mm, okay. And so your wife, she said, go for it. Yeah. My, my wife said, go for it. Um, we, uh, I, I was involved in a, in a group, a business group of other, uh, business people that I had shared my idea with. And so I had an investor when I left Agribeef, um, to start this business. I had an investor who was interested in helping me create that, uh, create that idea. So it's not like I had to dump a whole bunch of my own money into it, although I did. Um, but I, I did have some support going into that. So it was kind of like switching jobs. I mean, it was sort of like you know, switching to a, a lesser paying job, but, but there is this hope that it would be successful and that we'd make some money with it. So she was very supportive. So there was risk there, but maybe not terrible because you had invested there. So you had some other... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife worked too. So it wasn't like we were completely. Gotcha. Now, do you feel like, I mean, a lot of times people, when they're starting their own business, a lot of times, especially when they have their own idea, validation of the idea doesn't always happen. And it sounds like you did do some validation where you talked to some other businesses that said, Hey, yeah. Okay. It seems like this is a problem. Do you feel like you did sufficient validation? No. Uh, So here's, here's the funny thing about it. So we started out, going to build this uh, application that would allow businesses to book flights on their company jet. This idea evolved into really what we're trying to do was connect a person with a ride from, it just happened to be on an airplane. And as we kicked this idea around, it was like, what if it was any kind of ride? What if all you were trying to do is just, you're trying to match a person with somebody that can give them a ride? I'm like, and did you found Uber? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. So no. I created a I company called, so the name of the, the name of the 
product was called Navitopia. Okay. And it ultimately evolved into uh, this product that would, using Google Maps, would allow a person who needed a ride to connect with somebody who was going to the place they were going to, right? So getting a ride with a car, on a car. What we struggled with was figuring out how to monetize it. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a consumer product and not the original business it, it corporate It completely product. morphed because it, it went from just finding a seat on a company jet to finding a seat to just in anything to get to where you were going, right? So it's matching people who needed a ride with somebody who could give them a ride. And we built this product and we couldn't, the, the th- challenge was monetizing it because uh, Apple Pay wasn't around yet. Google Pay wasn't around yet. The ability to pay electronically was the, was brand new. The, the technology really hadn't evolved yet. And so there was this, we wanted to be able to allow people to get a ride but not have to exchange you know, cash in a car or you know, use the credit card you know, machine trying to pay with a credit card or something like that. And so that was a real struggle, figuring out how to monetize it. But... Um, we took it to we took the idea to Boise State University, which is a commuter college, because the, and somebody there saw value in the ability to match students with rides to get to school, and so we went and talked to them about it, and they were they were pretty interested in it, and it we had a couple conversations, and it never really went anywhere, and then one day I get a call from one of the contacts at Boise State, and they're like, "How close are you to launching this?" and I said, "What's well, it's kind of launched. It's just we're trying to figure out how to make people aware of it. So they called me back in for another meeting, and this was when BSU was going to the Fiesta Bowl for the first time. And it was in you know Arizona. And they is, that, were, is this 2007 then? 2006, 2007. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, so you are we still? So I, this was so this was after that. This was maybe oh nine. Oh, okay, so yeah, the, the second first festival, festival was the January one, two thousand seven, right? And then the second one was two thousand nine. So yep. this was two thousand nine. Okay, I was going to say, trying to get my time. And they yeah. and and the folks at BSU were trying to find ways to get fans down to Arizona, and so they said, "Can people use this to find rides down to Arizona?" I said, "Absolutely, they can do that." That's what it's for. That's what it's for. And so, all of a sudden, uh, BSU like connected me with uh, local news and the local news came out and like interviewed me and uh, my product, you know, Navitopia was on the news and we wound up matching people with to rides. I mean, there's people going down in motorhomes and they were, you know, they got on the platform and then people who needed rides, it was like, yeah, come, we have a couple seats on our motorhome or, you know, cars going down. And we actually connected quite a few people to get rides to the Fiesta Bowl. And that was like, my 15 minutes of fame with that product. That's the, that's the most successful it ever got was helping people get to the Fiesta Bowl that, that How did you do the monetization there? Was it just like... We just buddy? let them use it for free. Okay. So the so idea... Like, so at that point, it was just, we're going to let people use it for free while we figure out how, yeah. to, how to monetize it. And, you know, we were thinking of like, you know, at that time, ads and those sorts of things to try to make it work. Ultimately, we ran out of money before we could figure out how to monetize it. And then the next thing you know, there's Uber. Yeah, <laughs> but, right. Now, were you stressed? I mean, this is a startup is not easy. Uh, and especially if you don't have a clear monetization path. So interesting. I, I wasn't really stressed about 
But what stressed me was the fact that I had friends who had invested money in the yeah, business. That's understandable. And, um, and it was going to fail and, and they were going to lose their money. And that was the most stressful thing to me was losing, losing my friend's money. And, um, and then, you know, I had a couple employees, you know, I had hired some developers to help and stuff and I had to lay those people off. And that's really difficult, you know, cause you know, these people count on you to, you know, for their paychecks and that right. sort of thing. So, so that's where the stress was, was not so much in that the idea wasn't going to work. It was the consequences of it not working. And some commitments that yeah. you felt like you wanted to uphold as much as you could. Yeah. Yeah. And so the business lasted a couple of years. Uh, and then we finally had to fold up at the end of 2010. We just ran out of money before we could figure out how to make money. Yeah. That's a common, you know, that's part of the journey. Yeah. 99% Startup of startups fail. That's right. right. Yeah. So, so then yeah. what was next? I mean, were you like, okay, time to go back to Agribee? S- no. So ag- yeah, my days at Agribee were done. At uh, how that. many years did you have at Agribee? Is that like 15? A total of 17. So 17. I worked there seven years the first time and 10 years the second time. That's a good career. Yeah. And, and it's, it, like I said, great company, great people. I still have lots of friends there, including the family who owns the business. They're still great friends. So. And, and. But that didn't uh, sour you, that the business that you started, Navitopia didn't sour you towards no, doing your own thing? No, what it did was uh, solidify the, the idea that I really like software startups. I mean, that whole idea of trying to create something that does that. But I didn't have another idea at that point. So I was approached by a friend of mine who was the president of, at that time, of Icon Credit Union. And she came to me and asked me if I would as a consultant, um, come help them determine if they needed um, a systems analyst or a VP of IT. They had grown to a point where uh, their technology had grown to a point where they, they needed some leadership, but they just didn't know what kind they needed. And she wondered if I could just come as a consultant and advise them on what it was they needed to manage their technology and their growing business. I said, Sure. So I took a consulting contract and went and helped them and determined that they needed both. <laughs> they needed a VP of IT and they needed a systems analyst to help support their software systems. And so I met with her and said, here's, here's what you need, Connie. You need a VP of IT and you need a systems analyst. And she turns it around, slides it back across the table and says, you want to be our VP of IT? Sure, I'll do that because I needed a job because my business had just failed. And so I became the VP of IT for Icon Credit Union. And I did that for a year. During that time, I met uh, a a friend of mine introduced me to a guy by the name of Ken Holsinger, who uh, had this idea for a software product, but he needed somebody who could build it. And so uh, our mutual friend introduced us, uh, my friend Ken, he had just left his job and wanted to get this startup going. And so um, he and I partnered on it, and uh, he brought me in as a co-founder. And so I left. After one year, I left Icon, and I went to work for what ultimately became Cloud.com with Ken, and we invented the next product that we created, which was... Um, a product we called SlideCloud, which allowed 
presenters to, it was a web-based system that allowed presenters to upload presentations into SlideCloud and then add interactions to their slides. So if you had a slide that said, um, do you like ice cream? You could add a thumbs up, thumbs down interaction to that slide. People could join the presentation on their phones. And as you advance through the slides in your presentation, the slides would automatically advance on the devices. And when you got to the slide that says, do you like ice cream? The interaction would pop up on the screen automatically and you could, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. The next slide could be, what flavor do you like? A, chocolate, B, vanilla, C, strawberry. And so you could add a number of different types of interactions to your slides. And as you, as you arrived at those slides in the application, those interactions would automatically come up and you could respond to them and the presenter would get real-time data back on a dashboard on their computer. They get real-time data responses to their questions. Uh, this uh, timeline, again, 2012 is about when you left ICON? So 2011. 2011. Yep. 2011, I left ICON and went to work with Ken at cloud.com. Are you itching to get out again? Yes. Okay. So you kind of were yeah. like, okay, ICON's fine, but I'm really looking. I, I had a good time with that first startup. I want to go again. So you, Ken, when Ken came to with the idea, it was like pretty easy. It was very easy. How about your wife? Was she like, okay, we failed once. Nope. She was, she was totally on board with it. Um, we got, you know, we had a lot of conversation about it, but she could see the potential in this idea as well. And, um, she's, she was very supportive. She was like, yeah, if you think this is what you want to do, let's do it. Now, economically, the first one, you lost money. Yeah. Cause you said you put a lot of your own money into that. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the, the indirect cost of not getting paid too, right? Right. So <laughs> there, was, double there. there was a whole, there was a whole lot of time of, of no salary and all of that sort of thing too. So, so yeah, I can not, but your wife was like, she was like, yeah, I don't care. I'll take this risk. I think there's potential here. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And so, so off we go. And Ken had already landed some investors as well. So it wasn't a situation I was going into uh, a situation of no pay at that point. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't the salary I had been making. And right. Again, it was, you go into these things with a pay cut. And so, um, off we went to create this product and, um, just so when someone starts a startup like this and you have some investors, you're going in as co-founder, is it okay? Something you can share what the percentages look like as in with your investors compared to you and Ken, or is that, if that's NDA or whatever, that's fine. Yeah. So in this particular case, Ken, Ken handled all of the business side. And so um, as a co-founder, uh, I was named as a co-founder, but my role was just product, right? I was building the product. He handled the business. And I, to be honest, don't really know like what the percentages of all the investors that he had lined up, like what those worked out to be. So you had said you had X amount of shares is kind of how it worked. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even know whatever pretty He's much handle everything else yeah yeah pretty much and so we built this product and started selling it into events conferences and conventions right and um <clears throat> one day we were contacted by uh, somebody from salesforce and they had saw our product online in a search and basically just asked does it do really do what you say it does yes it really does that where you can add interactions to slides and people can respond. And so Salesforce was getting ready to launch Dreamforce, which is their very popular annual convention. 
and their CFO was making a presentation to uh, investors in Salesforce, and he wanted to use our product to get response, live responses from the audience. And so, uh, so we got a gig doing Salesforce, doing Dreamforce, and while we were there, um, we were discovered by a company called Freeman. Freeman is the world's largest event management company. And so Dreamforce is a Freeman event. Freeman manages the production of that event. As in Dreamforce goes to Freeman and say, okay, we're going to have X amount of attendees handle the logistics, that kind of thing. And then Freeman puts it all together. Got it. And so they, uh, that's where they come to discover us. And we were approached by Freeman in 2014 for acquisition. Um, Three years, right? 2011 to 2014, about three years. That's not bad. Yeah. And so um, at that time, Freeman was divided into a number of different divisions, and we were approached by Freeman AV, which is their audiovisual division. And they wanted to acquire us. That division wanted to acquire us. While we were going through talks with them, we were under contract not to talk to anybody else. And they wrote us a check not to talk to anybody else while they determined whether they wanted to acquire us or not. So a different division within Freeman then loved our product, wanted to use it, and couldn't because we were in talks with AV. We get to the end of negotiations with Freeman AV, and Freeman AV finally said, ah, we're going to pass. We're not going to acquire you. Freeman XP, which was this other division, said, let's go. And they, they contracted us for a year to white label our product. And they, it was sold as a Freeman XP product. So not, it wasn't acquisition. You still were, your, you still were cloud.com. We're still cloud.com, but uh, we sold exclusively through Freeman XP. Got it. And created a new product that was called FXP Touch. And so we immediately, they immediately sent us off to Southeast Asia to do a Google event. And it was, it was a great time. So we, we sold a lot through um, Freeman XP. We get into the summer of 2015. And we had sold into this event in California that was, it was a conference for event tech companies. So all sorts of event tech companies went to this conference. And we were only there because they were using our product in, in the um, presentations. Even though that would have been applicable for you. That would have been a good conference for you to go to. It would have been a great conference for us to go to, but they were just using our product. So we were there as support. But at this particular, uh, at this particular conference, they have a competition that's voted on by the attendees and they used our product to do the votes, but they have this competition where they vote on what's the best event tech product here. And our sales guy who was there helping with support was approached by the event manager and said, you should put FXP touch in this competition. And we're like, but we're just here as like, we're just here to as support. We didn't even buy a ticket. We didn't even buy a ticket. We're just here to support. And they said, well, you, but your product should be in the vote because everybody used it. Okay. Well, okay. So we put it in and we won <laughs> and not by a little. We, we blew the competition away in that particular thing. And that, 
wound up getting written up in a trade magazine in the event industry, we got a lot of press for that win. And so Freeman approached us again and said, hey, how would you like to be acquired? And at this time, Freeman was creating a new division called Freeman Digital because they wanted to get into digital events because the, the event tech industry was kind of exploding and they wanted to get into it. So they, um, they long story short, wound up acquiring cloud. And um, they bought our product and hired all of our people. We had like seven people. So they acquired us, hired all of our people, and we became their Boise office. So you just said that very casually. You're like, oh, they bought us. We had seven employees. I mean, you excited? excited? An acquisition is normally a very exciting time for a founder. It was a very exciting time. And, and at that time, you know, we were at that point as a startup where it was like we either get acquired or we go out of business because it was just we, it was difficult selling into events um, and making the kind of money that was necessary to you know, pay seven people and keep the business running. And so we were like getting to the end of it and the timing was quite good. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very exciting time. Freeman was, you know, when Ken and I started the business back in uh, 2011, Freeman was one of the companies we talked about as a successful exit, right? When we get down the road, what do we, you know, what do we want to do with this? And one of the things we had said from the very beginning was <clears throat> we could sell to Freeman. So if you were to measure success of this acquisition on a, on a scale of like, where do you go for dinner on that night? Is it like, are we talking like Ruth Chris, like a good acquisition? Or are we talking like, you know, maybe like Taco Bell? Um, <clears throat> it was, it was probably more like Applebee's, right? It was okay. somewhere in between. <laughs> so good. You know, you're, you're it a big step up over Taco Bell. But. It, it, so the acquisition wasn't life changing, okay. right? It was, it it basically saved us. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't bad. I mean, we we got a little bit of out of it, but it wasn't life changing. And we being the the shareholders. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, what it gave us was the ability to continue existing, right? Because we became the Freeman Boise office, but we we kept all of our people, right? Yeah. So we had this nice little team, and um, Freeman considered us. Uh, a great resource for developing other digital products. So they started throwing other products to us to build and that allowed us to grow. And we grow to be an office of about 20 people. I see developers and designers and you know, support people and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a great time. It was a really great time after that acquisition. And then after, I mean, how long were you there? So uh, <clears throat> we were, we were acquired uh, officially at the end of 2015 and um, and things were going great until the pandemic. We get into 2020 and um, of course all of live events around the world went away overnight and Freeman, which is a multi-billion dollar global events company, you know, lost all of their business overnight. And so uh, Freeman started going through this time where they were laying off thousands of people. But their big customers all wanted their events to go online and have digital events. And so while the rest of Freeman was 
shutting down, Freeman Digital was exploding. And <clears throat> during the time, from the time that we got acquired to 2020, Freeman Digital acquired a number of different event tech companies. We were the, ours was the first, but lots of companies followed. And these companies operated around the country or around the world um, as little boutique shops that supported the products that they were building when they got acquired, just like us. But now all those products shut down because they were products that were built for live events. And now all of, all of, this, all of these disparate development teams had to come together and build a single product that wound up being called Online Event Pro. We called it OEP. And that online event product was being sold to these clients very quickly. And so um, my job went from managing uh, a, a small shop here of you know, 20 people to helping manage this dispersed development team around the world to build a single product. And it was very stressful very stressful because um, these this online event product was promised in a very short time, and it was kind of like you know the plane took off and we're still attaching the wings, kind of a thing. And the first few events that we did within like 35, 45 days was very rough, and but it got better. But I knew right away that, and this was in 2020. I knew right away that this was not what I wanted to do. This, it was 18-hour days, Zoom calls all day, and um, I knew right away that I wanted to get out of that and do something else. And so um, I gave my notice in June of 2020. They persuaded me to stay for a while longer, so I did. And, um, and so it was during this time that I was talking with Jeremy, and we had kicked around this idea of the job board, right? And it's like, JB, I think it might be time to launch this business and do this job board because I'm, I'm done with this. Because he was with you, right? I think he was at yeah. Cloud with you. Yeah, he was at Cloud with us. And in fact, uh, he, got, he also uh, decided to leave Freeman during that as well. So he had already left Freeman, actually, and was working um, at Fitted and, as a designer. And so I... I said, I, I think I'm going to jump and go, let's do a startup and let's create this company and let's build this job board. He was all about it. So, um, so that's what we did. And that was in, I left, I ultimately left Freeman in April of 2021 and immediately just went into another. And that's where we are today. And that's where we are today. Now I'm, I'm interested in another a little bit. It's, it's a two-sided marketplace really monetization is because you need the users there searching and hopefully creating profiles because that makes the job board easier. Right. You also need the employers. Mm -hmm. Now, two-sided marketplaces are difficult. They're yeah. not easy. Um, what are your feelings going into that? And But the good thing is it's a big pie. It Gigantic is a, pie. It is a big pie. Um, so with another, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's, it's a two-sided coin because you have to have job seekers and that traffic to attract job posters to make it worth their while, right? Because if they post jobs and nobody ever applies for them, that, won't, that business model won't last long. 
all along, we felt like finding job posters won't be the, the bigger of the two problems because of our price point. I spent enough time talking to business owners and HR directors and recruiters to know that uh, if you can provide a quality product for a reasonable price, they'll post their jobs there because their experience with the other platforms is not good. Um, I haven't really talked to anybody who enjoys using Indeed or who enjoys using LinkedIn jobs. And I want to build something they can enjoy using. But the price point of $49 for a job post is plus they get the first one free, right? So they sign up, they create their org profile and uh, they get their first job post free. So there's nothing to lose. So we knew that we'd be able to attract job posters that way. So the real challenge is <clears throat> getting job seekers to come and providing an experience that's a little sticky so they hang around. And so that's the idea of another self, ultimately, is to create, uh, create a product that job seekers can go and create a profile for themselves. We've built features into it that allow them to not only use another self to find a job, for when they're seeking a job, but also it's something they can use when they're not looking for a job. So uh, we've added features in there that are similar to like Linktree. So you can create a landing page with links of things that you can share. We have plans to add um, other features that allow you to have uh, a gallery. So if you're a creator and you want to have a gallery of the, of your work, you'll be able to do that. And you can turn off the, portions of the page that are used for finding a job. So education and experience and all of those things, like what you see on LinkedIn, those things are there in another self, but you can turn them off if you're not using those so that the page really becomes more of a landing page that you can use to just, you know, create an online presence for yourself. And so um, we want to create that experience that allows people to come and create a profile and be a little more sticky so that as job posters are posting jobs on another hire, we can, we can start using AI to start matching people to jobs, right? And so um, as recruiters start posting on another hire, we'll be able to say, hey, here's some people that have the qualifications for this job that you are looking for. And we'd be able to show, show them people who might not necessarily even be looking for a job, right? And allow them to really be recruiters and find people for the positions that they have out there. So, um, and also, um, you know, allow somebody to turn on a notification within another self and say, yeah, if, if, you know, a react developer, you know, if a front end developer job comes up on another hire, let me know kind of a thing too. So that's the, that's the whole concept behind it. And then it's, and now that we've launched, it's figuring out the right marketing, right? Google ads, uh, Facebook ads, and those sorts of things to start driving job seekers to another hire to look for these jobs. So you said you have jobs on there already. Um, I know common common tactic with job boards is to even, you know, you scrape job listings from other sites to seed it mm -hmm. a little bit, right? Yeah. We haven't done that. Um, the problem that comes from that is you wind up with, a, with jobs that have been filled that because uh, you don't know because you don't know yeah and so you wind up with the jobs on your site that are really no longer available mm -hmm. and it becomes lost leaders to the job seekers that go find that we 
at the, for today, our, our goal is to have real jobs out there. And, um, there's just, there's this hump we're going to have to get over, right? We're going to have to get enough jobs out there to make it, uh, worthwhile for job seekers, but we're going to have to drive that traffic job seeker traffic there and make sure that the jobs that get posted get lots of views. Um, which we, you know, we keep track of views and how many people have applied and that sort of thing and show that to the, to the job posters as yeah. well. The jobs that get posted on there, we also, um, we connect those into um, Google's job search. So uh, Google has a built-in job search if you're looking for a job. It's a very specific data that's built into a job post that Google scrapes. So that when you post a job out there, it does show up in the, in the Google job search as well, which is adds value to a job posters job post. What's your guys' plan with another, where do you want to take it? Well, as I said at the very beginning, it's, I'm, I'm really on a mission to do something good. One of my, one of my favorite companies of all time is Dollar Shave Club. And I like what they did uh, in shaking up an industry that had that had really gotten to a place where, you know, the the big players in the industry, Schick and Gillette, were had ruined the experience, and they were charging exorbitant prices for razors. And Dollar Shave Club came in with a high quality, low cost product and a different type of service, right? And it shook up that whole industry. And what started out as just like, hey, we should build a job board. That would be fun, you know, simple to do. Became this like quest of this belief that small businesses are being raked over the coals by these um, big platforms that are just charging too much money. There's just, there's no reason why a small business or any business should be charged $300 for a job post. I just... I don't understand it and it's wrong. And um, so I'm kind of on this quest to build something that does something good for small business and, you know, and to have fun with it. You know, you can, you can create a successful business selling $49 job posts and gainfully employ a team of developers. You can be successful with that. And so that's my plan is to get it off the ground and, and achieve that goal of creating something that does something good. Um, but, you know, someday exit out of it. You know, I'm, I'm an old developer, and uh, at some point, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably sell the business. But we'll sell it to somebody who has the same principal belief of doing something good because I don't want to sell it to, I want to sell it to Indeed or any, anything like that. But that's, that's my goal with it. That's the plan is to build it up and achieve the goal that, that JB and I started out with, the dream that we started out with, and, and then see where it goes from there. Would you, looking back across your, you know, you've, had a, you've shared an incredible story so far, would you do anything different? <sighs> um. That's, that's a difficult question to answer because I don't know, uh, every time, you know, this is my, this is my third startup and every time I do 
every time I've done it, I've learned something different, not only about how to do it, but something different about myself. And it's kind of a, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so I don't know that I do anything different. You know, in starting this startup, I employed everything I'd learned up to this point. I don't know what I don't know. Um, there are some things that I don't know that I'm aware of. But uh, I don't know that I would do anything different. This has been a great experience. We've had a lot of support from family and friends. Um, you know, I had family and friends invest in this particular business as well that surprised me. Uh, so we had a lot of support that has that have brought us this far. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm at the point now where I want to get uh, the proof of concept successful enough that I can take it to local investors and try to find some investment dollars that way so that we can accelerate the, the dream of getting this thing built a little bit because with just me and one other guy writing code, it's pretty slow. And so I'd like to, at some, some point soon, I'd like to find some investor, some larger investor dollars, but I don't know that I would do anything different. I don't know what that would be. I'm sure there is some things, but I don't know what they are. Appreciate you coming on, Casey. This well, has thanks. been great. It's been fun. It's yeah. Been yeah. Fun. Thanks, Casey, so much. Really appreciate it. And again, just so you're aware, you can reach out and find Casey's contact information on his site, which is www.another, the word another, dot biz. So another.biz. Sounds like there's a couple of options there. You can go to another self and another hire and post either your resume or post a job that you're searching for, which would be a good um, value for $49 for certain. So appreciate Casey joining us. And that's it. Thanks for listening to the Founders Podcast. Be sure to follow the host on Twitter. Search at George B. Hansen and at Brandon Minot to discuss more. Also, be sure to visit thefounderspod.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content.